The Olympic Mindset Podcast is brought to you by the NAHT, the School Leaders Union. You know, the thing that, one of the things that I'm really proud of uh, for myself, Dominic, is that I've always marched the beat of my own drum. Believe me, it's, uh, it can be a very lonely road. Honestly, people would not believe it if the story was told as it unfolded. So it was even more remarkable. Hello, and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. This week's guest is Devon Harris. Devon is a three-time Olympian and the former captain of the Jamaican bobsled team. He's a former military officer that graduated from Sandhurst Military Academy in England. He's the founder of the Keep On Pushing Foundation that helps deprive children. Devon comes from unbelievably humble beginnings in the infamous Kingston Firehouse ghetto. His extraordinary life inspired the Disney classic Cool Runnings. Devon, thank you for joining us today from your home in New York and thank you for taking the time to share what it means to have an Olympic mindset as a leader and in life. So thanks, Devin. Indeed, indeed. I think it's, uh, well, you know, I, I tell people all the time that uh, we're all leaders in our own right, you know, regardless of, you know, the title we have, you know, what's on our, the, our office, the door to our office or our business card or however long we've been working with a company. Um, because leadership, as John Maxwell says, is influence. And every single day we're influencing another human being when we interact with them and you know it's important work because when you're influencing another person in a positive way you're bringing you're adding value to their lives and and i know especially for kids sometimes they it's difficult for them to see themselves as leaders but if you just look around you'll realize that yeah you know what there are some people that you go oh yeah he or she is a leader of the group um but don't don't uh discount the person who may be quiet or a little shy. You know, I was incredibly shy uh, when I was growing up. Um, but but I look back now and I realize that, yeah, I was having some influence on my peers. And, and so we, we all do that, in addition to which I'm sure we'll talk about the business of personal leadership. And exactly, that's a really interesting point you've made immediately there, um, that sometimes you can look at somebody and see that they might be a leader. So what does that look like to you? What does leadership look like to you, Devin? Um, you know, so it, it is usually that person who is out front um, kind of guiding and directing things. Um, and, it, and it varies, really, if you think about it, from circumstances to circumstances. Because sometimes when, you're, when you find yourself in a crisis, the person that you'd be looking at to be calm and collected and leading, you know, directing, guiding, is a person who is bouncing off the wall. I'm not sure what to do. And then it's this other a uh, person who was always very quiet going, okay, um, let's do this, let's do that. You go do this, you go do that. So it, 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 in, in many instances, it really varies. Uh, um, and it, it, it can be very a very situational kind of thing. Um, but overall, uh, you know, I see a, a leader as someone who 
is always working hard to become the best they can be and at the same time encouraging or inspiring other people to do the same. That's, that's a, again, a really great point. And I think the term we quite often use is gravitas to define leadership and what it looks like in somebody. So again, those kind of attributes you talk about there of being almost stoic, resilient, hardworking, leading from the front, not necessarily telling others what to do. And I think it probably all boils down to finding a passion and something you potentially believe in. So the success you've had across your career and all the things you've achieved how have you married that with finding a passion for each of those very different things that you've been successful with from Sandhurst and your military career to the Olympics and, and then the charity work? Yeah, I, I think it starts out with um, things that you genuinely have an interest in, you know, perhaps uh, maybe good at. Uh, and, and I I say that with a little bit of reservation because oftentimes, you know, you're not very good at the things that you like. And so that's where the, you talk about gravity. That's just the, the resilience and the discipline to work hard, to do the consistent work, to develop those skills um, so you can become good at it. Um, but definitely have a natural interest, a natural inclination to, to this thing, whatever it is. I think it starts there. And so for me, I look, in, you know, I look at my life, uh, it started out with, with you know, my love of sports, you know, football initially. Um, and I love playing and I, and I, you know, I did well, I had a natural, I just love to play. What can I say? <laughs> and, um, but then there was just something, uh, I think special about sports that kind of connected with me, this idea that, uh, what you do on the soccer pitch or the, or the athletic field was more, had more to say about what was in your heart than anything else for that matter. And, you know, when it came down to crunch time and everybody's exhausted, like who had the, the, bigger will, the stronger desire. Um, so it's, and yeah, and I had a natural interest in wanting to become a soldier. And so that kind of pushed me in that direction. Absolutely. You know, there are other practical considerations as I grew older, right? I grew up in a really rough neighborhood, impoverished and violent. And for me, the quickest way out of the ghettos was to become an army officer. Um, so it started with that natural inclination, but then working on the skills, doing the hard work that is necessary to um, develop the, the skills necessary to achieve those goals. That's really interesting, Devon, the fact that your original goal wasn't necessarily to be something or to achieve something. It was to get out of the area that you came from. So again, how did you manage to kind of marry the two things? Because I'd imagine training with Sandhurst must have been extremely difficult and you must have had some really dark days in your military training career. So how did you get out of bed on those really dark, rainy mornings in Britain, having come from the lovely sunny Jamaica to, you know, making sure that you don't go back to where you came from and seeing the bigger picture? That must have been really hard. Yeah, so, you know, so it started out with actually wanting the thing first, wanting to be... Uh, one, a soldier, and then, as I thought, learn more about the, the army and the, the fact that you could actually enlist as an officer going, oh, I want to do that. It was harder, but it was, um, you know, I guess it, it would put me on a higher level, uh, you know, and so I'm like, I want it. I, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so as I grew older, though, and I started to, to, to think about my life and the direction I wanted it to go, of course, I wanted to be a soldier. Now, this became my ticket. Like, 
this was like the quickest way out of, of the hood, man, to become an army officer. If I could do that, ooh, in my head, I would have been elevated all, you know, instantly out. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't, I was elevated, but I was really not out of the ghettos because my, that's, that's where I was from. That, that, those were where my roots were. That's where my family was and so on and so forth. So I found myself straddling these two worlds. Um, but the, the desire to want to be an officer and then the desire to want to get out of the ghettos made those cold, miserable, dark days at Sandhurst, and there were many. Um, should I say more tolerable? But it, it, it gave me that desire, gave me the impetus to push through those challenges um, to, to, to achieve the goals that I set for myself. So, were there any necessarily big or significant challenges you remember from that time at Sandhurst? And you know, what did that look like? How did it feel? And how did you overcome that particular challenge? Um, a, a few. So maybe the biggest one was, geez, I, I do that. I was so homesick. It wasn't funny. It was, you know, going to England uh, was my very first time out of Jamaica. And so you, you, you talk about uh, earlier, as you introduced me, dealing with change. You know, so I'm going from a country where we're 98% black to being in a plateau where I'm one of only three black guys and just surrounded in this completely new environment. I'm going from an environment that is uh, violent and and totally impoverished to, do, do I, I don't want to use the partiality of Santos, but certainly the most prestigious military military training school. If I to say, right? Devon, it is posh. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge leap, right? You know, and then, you know, dealing with all the different accents and the Welsh <laughs> accent and the Cockney accent. I'm like, oh, what am I talking to? Um, the Welsh is the nicest one, though, obviously. The, the, exactly, exactly. That's what <laughs> I mean. So you realize how difficult that was, right? And um, and then, yeah, dealing with the weather, that's the, the, miserable. Um, and then just dealing with the challenge of the training itself. You know, I, I remember going back to Sandhurst. I was now an officer and there was a new group of cadets uh, coming in and they were marching and you march everywhere in your suit, right? And I saw the look on their face, the misery. And I'm like, <laughs> I remember that feeling, you know? <laughs> but, but just, yeah, so it just took like everything um, that you had to, to, to work through all of those different layers uh, to be able to graduate. So before we move on from this point, I think a really in interesting thing we should probably cover is that when you spoke about getting out of the ghetto and wanting to get out of the ghetto, a lot of our listeners, you know, adults, children, whoever they may be, probably have had to sometimes maybe leave friends behind or leave maybe negative people behind that were possibly dragging them into things they shouldn't be involved in yeah did you ever have that kind of thing or were you lucky to be surrounded by a good network of people and what did you do to make sure that you did surround yourself with a good inner circle yeah it's a really challenging thing to find yourself in an environment like that where you know these are people that you know you grew up with and you have one vision uh, for yourself and they have a completely total vision for themselves and, and want you to come with them and remember i was 13 years old it's a that that summer between first and second form seventh and eighth grade i woke up and i said to all the boys on my street hey we're not friends again i just like it was like we're not friends again because we lived in a really poor neighborhood and from 
uh, from there you could look up on the hills literally and see these big beautiful mansions and they would call themselves sufferers and it just felt so burdensome like like this is my fate and and there's no chance of making up to enjoy some of that success we are seeing on the hill and i could not embrace that so i just said listen man we're not friends anymore and i started just kind of separated myself from them from the time I was in ninth grade until it was a third form of 15 to 19 when I graduated from fifth form. I was in school six days a week. So at the age friend, of 15, you told mm. your friends that you weren't going to be hanging around with them anymore? At the age of 13, I told them we're not friends anymore. And then <laughs> I found, yeah, and then I found, uh, you know, I kind of got through that, that age, second form, ninth, eighth grade. And then when I started running track seriously, um, that just kind of took my time, right? And so on Saturdays, I'm running track or I'm doing, you know, French festival or I was on the school's quiz team. I just found um, purposeful things to do that kept me out of the neighborhood. I wonder so how I, you had the strength to do that. I mean, I'm sure you must have had quite a kickback from those friends or maybe criticism or yeah, and I know we live in a very different world now where, you know, you should not fight. But I, I had to uh, gently persuade them of <laughs> uh, my desire and my steadfastness to, to, to stay this route, right? So, yeah, it didn't, it, it, it's not the kind of thing that you go, hey, we're not friends anymore. And they go, okay, fine. No, they, they challenged it. And we, we had to, um, yeah, I had to persuade them that I wasn't going to... Um, what the, you know, the thing that one of the things that I'm really proud of uh, for myself, Dominic, is that I've always marched the beat of my own drum. And it's not easy. I get it. I, it believe me, it's, uh, it can be a very lonely road. But I look back now, um, you know, it's, it's a typical story, right? If I go back to my old neighborhood, the guys that I grew up with, some of them are dead, others are in prison, and, and some of them are just... I don't even say they are living, they are existing. Because I go back and I'm looking, I'm thinking back to what my experience was and how, you know, all these years, this has been their experience. You know, I've been kind of around the, the world in that time frame. they've been around the block because they chose not to do something different. In, in the end, that's what it comes down to. They chose not to do something different. And you're right. It really is a lonely road. I think whenever you persist towards a goal that maybe is or hasn't been achieved by somebody before as you have done and also coming from quite humble beginnings as well to to try to kind of break out of those habits and break the cycle there's a really nice saying that um, was shared with me a while back which is if you want to be the man you can't be one of the boys so in other words if you mm. want to be the kind of master of your own destiny or potentially the leader or the person that everybody looks up to you can't march to the beat of others you need to find the thing you're passionate Absolutely. about yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I remember at 19 years old being the only guy uh, in school in my neighborhood and coming home at nights because I would spend all, all day at, at, at school and being teased and ridiculed, right? And just holding my little bag and just being humble. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm done with school. I'm in the army and, and, the, and the, the, the whole scenario has flipped, right? I'm the man now. That's right. amazing. <laughs> how, yeah, did you, how did you block that sound out, Devin? It must have been unbearable at times, especially as a 19-year-old. It's a really difficult time for anybody to, to have the, the mental fortitude 
to ignore those voices and stay on track must have been extremely difficult. You know, when you're in that, sometimes you have to simply just take yourself away from the environment. Uh, you know, and it, for me, it was, I guess, easy to do because I, school was not in the neighborhood. It okay. was outside of the neighborhood. So, you know, I traveled outside of my community for school. So you just simply take yourself out of the neighborhood and on your way home from, from, from school, you're getting the teasing and you just, you, you kind of hold your head straight because I know what I wanted, right? I wanted, I needed to finish this thing because the next step was the army and Sandhurst. I couldn't allow, you know, some fools on the side of the, on the corner of the street to be um, distracting me. I love that. I absolutely love that. Almost pig-headedness to to achieve what you want to achieve. Do you think- I um, I, I can be that way. So sometimes we do see, you know, with with the the generation coming through and and even my generation and older at times, this kind of lack of personal responsibility. And I'm all for, you know, the the kind of more, um, we're we're more able to talk about mindfulness now and more able to talk about our feelings. Mm -hmm. But at times I feel like sometimes personal responsibility sometimes then comes second to that. Do you think that you were able to park your emotions for that time to accept personal responsibility or was it a juggling act? Um, I balanced it I, by succeeding, I, I, which again, it's a lonely road, right? But success is the best revenge. <laughs> um, just like, you know, and, and so for the things that I could, like I could, I was okay. I was an okay athlete, but I, I'm on a no illusion, and I've said this many times that like, like, like I was a most talented athlete in my school. But you know what? Nobody outworked me. And I've heard friends say that today, like, like nobody, but nobody outworked me. And so the harder I worked, the more successful I got. And I'm like, I did I and so I didn't have to use words. My actions said it. Like on race day, I'm winning. Like who's coming second, kind of thing. Right. Um, and and so when you have if, if you can get that single focus and work on it and know that although he is you know, running off his mouth or she's running off her mouth, I am actually better than her. I'm better than him. I'm not saying more talented, but you, because you put the work in, you are producing better results. Then you have to be encouraged by that. And so yes, personal responsibility. Get, you know, I was, I was sharing the story recently of, of my first, day of athletics training I, I i miss i don't know why but i miss that training i don't know why and i was so worried it's a really bad start by the way <laughs> yes and i was worried that the coach would think i'm not serious and i'm like oh my god i, I wonder how much i miss i'm far behind and you know by the end of the month most of the people who were there that first year kind of just whittled away withered away they then they weren't committed and i stayed the course to the point where I, I was at a school that didn't have a strong sports program. By my second year running track, I was the only guy on the team coaching myself. Wow. So that's just personal responsibility. But again, you have to set some goals for yourself and go, this is what I want to do. And this is, and if that's the goal you have, well, what do you need to do? You don't, we all need somebody, but you, it starts with you. You have to remember that it starts with you. Nothing happens without you getting started. Listening to you, Devon, makes me think of a book I read recently. It's called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And she basically identifies, I think it's five points that were kind of 
theoretically or, or proven by uh, study, I'd imagine. <laughs> um, and it yeah. was courage, conscientiousness, perseverance, resilience, and passion. Um, yeah. and, and those five points come through in, you know, come through tenfold in what you're telling us. So I think that's a really nice thing to hear you say that you didn't necessarily have the, the most talent and you weren't necessarily the brightest student, but those five things really drove you to where you needed to be and, and essentially allowed you to have more grit than other people. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I have uh, had the good fortune of chatting with Angela as well. And, and, you're, and, and you know, you're right. And she, she's correct. You know, it's like grit is something that you, I think you develop, right? You may have, you know, I don't know where it, where it starts, like which comes first, a chicken or the egg kind of thing, right? But uh, what I know is that as you, as you persist, man, like, like my thing is that you have to keep on pushing, right? As you, as, as you kind of bite your teeth into this thing, like, oh God, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I just have to, right? I, I just kind of feel like you don't have to have all the answers at the outset. The only answer you need is, hey, I need to get this done. And if you, if you start with that, then yeah, you start developing that grit, that persistence and that perhaps just as important, that confidence in your ability. And, you know, the more you do it, the more confident you become, the more persistent and the more grittier you become. So you your, your book, Keep On Pushing, would you like to tell us a little about your book and maybe what you cover in, the, in that text? <laughs> it's kind of funny that you're talking about my book and I was talking about school and uh, when I was in school uh, the teachers was, would always say you must reread your essays and I never did Dominique I'm like why would I reread it I just wrote it <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what you're yeah. saying is your book is full of spelling errors and mistakes <laughs> no no I learned the lesson I like, like I wish I practiced those I learned the lessons in high school but I eventually learned it miss honest I did because I reread everything now, or most everything. I reread re read my book. Um, Keep on Pushing Hot Lessons from Cool Runnings is a semi-autobiographical motivational book. So yeah, it, it talks about Bob setting and the lessons of, I've learned uh, uh, from those experiences, but also the lessons that I've, and how the, the experiences of my early life impacted, uh, you know, the journey as, as it were. Um, and so, yeah, the, in, in the end, what I'm challenging and encouraging everyone to do is to keep on pushing in every single year of their lives, um, because it doesn't end. No matter how challenging it is, you can find a way to push yourself past those challenges. And once you've achieved, there's always another level, man. I tell people all the time, go as far as you can see for when you get there, you'll see further. I really, really like that kind of segue into us talking about cool runnings now. <laughs> so, so, Devon, I must say this to make you feel old. Some of the people listening won't have been born in 1988. And, oh, my back is hurting. <laughs> I said that. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> and, and I must remind everybody that Calgary 1988 was, was huge. It wasn't just cool runnings, the film that came from that and the Jamaican bobsled team. There was Eddie the Eagle, right? Was that 1988? The Eddie the Eagle, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are some stories that, that Eddie the Eagle, our story, uh, the Battle of the Carmens with Katarina Witt and Debbie Thomas, Dan Jansen and this uh, tripping up in skating. There are so many amazing stories from those Olympics. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. But ours is of course. Yeah, yeah, yours is the best one, obviously. And I'm biased, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. So... 
I must ask then, obviously, before we talk about anything else, what what was the real story of, of Cool Runnings? Was it as remarkable as the film comes across? I became a member of NHT when I became a deputy head teacher. It's been there throughout my leadership career, from deputy headship into my head teaching roles. I've used it when I needed advice. I've used it when I needed training. And I've used it when I've needed support. NHT has been there throughout my career. If you're interested in becoming a member, come to our website, www.naht.org.uk. Serial Mash by Too Simple is your online library for reading and comprehension, packed with over 140 books and growing. With a new chapter every week of term, follow-up activities, comprehension and guided reading resources, all the hard work is done for you. It can be accessed anywhere and readers can choose to customise visual properties and toggle reading audio to suit their exact requirements. When children read a Serial Mash book, it's automatically recorded in their online journal and any other reading can easily be added as well. As an educator, you get access to useful data such as reading frequency and minutes read for individuals, classes or groups. To start your free trial of Serial Mash, head to twosimple.com forward slash Olympic Mindset. It's too simple. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they had to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and you can join the conversation on social media too with the hashtag Pearson School Report. NAHT, the School Leaders Union. NAHT is democratically run and supports its members through offering unparalleled protection and representation. We are committed to developing the profession through the excellent training opportunities we offer. We use our highly respected collective voice to influence the policy decisions of government. If you're interested in becoming a member, come to our website, www.naht.org.uk. You know what, though, dude, honestly, it was even more remarkable. Uh, wow. So much so that, honestly, people would not believe it if the story, if the movie, if the story was told uh, as it unfolded, uh, the, the, the movie told that story that way. Wow. So um, the, our team got, got selected in September of 1987. We had never seen a bobsled at that point, right? We saw a bobsled later that month. We... Um, the, the movie suggested that we train as a four-man team from the very start. We actually, the, and it dawned on me this year as uh, the Beijing Olympics were happening and I was doing all these interviews that perhaps in the history of the Olympics, the only time an athlete or a team ever competed in the, the first time they were doing this event was in the Olympics was the only time was when we did it. Like, wow. If you can imagine that the first time we raced a four-man sled 
was the Olympic Games. That's not what the movie says, but that's exactly what happened. And we pushed the seventh fastest start time. So yeah, so from that perspective, definitely more remarkable than, than what the movie suggests. <laughs> so which character were you, Devin? So I tell people I was a handsome one and then they, they take one <laughs> look at me and they just break out laughing. and they're like, there's nothing handsome about you. <laughs> so the, the characters are, are so different from real life characters. If I had to choose one, it would be Yul Brenner, the bald-headed guy in Malik Yoba. Um, because he wanted to go to Buckingham Palace to live. He was a dreamer. And that's how I see myself as well, a dreamer. So talking about yourself as a dreamer, would you see that as a negative thing or a positive thing? Why do you oh, it's a, as a, a very positive thing, man. I don't think we'd be uh, sitting here having this conversation if I wasn't dreaming. If I wasn't dreaming about doing things that I probably had no business doing, like, you know, being a, as a ghetto boy going to Sandhurst, like who, you know, or being a Jamaican bobsledder, right? That's what you have to dream. Oh, I love that. So right then, that the part that I know you've been uh, dying to tell us, Devin. <laughs> would, would you talk us through that, you know, the, the 1988 Olympics to begin with? And then I do want to hear about your eventual captaincy in the 92 and 98 Olympics. Uh, so I'd like to hear about the 88 sure. Olympics first. So obviously, would you please take us through that and, and kind of how sure. that unfolded? Yeah, we could be here all day talking about that. So let me try and get you the short version. We, um, team got selected in 87. Four of us went to... Um, Lake Placid for the first time, saw a bobsled, saw a bobsled track. This was in September 87. Then we uh, finally went to Calgary in, in October and went on a bobsled track for the first time. Did one race against the B teams and from some of the major nations in November, December in Innsbruck, Austria. Um, spent Christmas in Jamaica, spent the month of January 88 in Lake Placid and then we went to the Olympics. So not a lot of training and knowledge. Um, we actually did compete in the two-man event. Can't remember what we finished. And then the four-man event, as I just mentioned, that, that week of the Olympics, we recruited a guy called Chris Stokes, who was Dudley's brother. And in three days, taught him everything we knew about pushing a sled. And then we pushed the seventh fastest side time and we crashed. And they made a movie about it. Um, the, the village was an amazing place to be. You know, that's one, one of the best parts about the Olympics is having an opportunity to meet people who under normal circumstances you'd never meet, you know. And so um, I remember marching in the opening ceremonies. And, you know, if you have watched the Olympics, you go, wow, those are some of the best athletes in the world. And here it is that you're marching in the opening ceremonies. You set foot in the stadium, 50,000 people screaming, more cameras than you can count on you. And you know that in that moment you are on TV around the world and you're like, wow, he must be. You're hoping that you can live up to that um, gleam in some kid's eye, thinking that you're one of the best athletes in the world. And then just seeing other athletes from around the world and knowing of the, 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 all the challenges that they had to overcome uh, to be there, like just create this oneness i call it utopia you know and then they they extinguish the flame and utopia ends that's the worst part oh <laughs> do you know i think that's a really interesting point though isn't it sometimes we work towards a goal or towards a certain event in our lives and then you get there and it potentially is a bit of an anti-climax 
Have you got yeah, yeah, and with the Olympics, they kind of hit a crescendo. But yeah, what goes up will come down, right? So you you do hit that crescendo, whatever it is for you. Um, but then, in my mind, the worst part is when that flame is extinguished because it's like all of this is done. You know, all this amazing camaraderie and oneness, actually. This this celebration of each of us as a human being, right? There are some differences, but what's more important to us are all the things that bind us and connect us. That's the thing that I believe gets emphasized in the Olympic Village more than anything else. Nice. So obviously we go back to the film slightly. The crash is quite a, a significant event in the film. Was it a significant to you guys on the day as it comes across in the movie or is it one of those things that when you're in the moment you maybe don't recognize how big an impact that has had and resonated across the world and across generations the resilience yeah. that you guys showed it was it was a big thing so they <laughs> the the it's kind of interesting so i started out as a as a pusher on the team i was a number two guy in the sled and very earlier on the coach had told us the brake men that we could look over the driver's shoulder just to kind of speed up us getting acclimatized to the sport. So I used to do that. And then I knew I wanted to become a driver. So that would make me want to look over the driver's shoulder even more. And on the, at the end of the second day, Dudley Stokes, who was an army captain and team captain at the time, I was an army lieutenant, calls me into the room and he presses pause on the VCR really angrily. And he goes, watch that. And that's me looking over his shoulder. There's <laughs> <And he goes, laughs> a picture online of that, you know. And he goes, "Take the goggles off." So I took the goggles off, man, and we're heading on the track. You know, push the seven fastest start time, which we didn't know then. We just, but things were going well. And then we hit the wall uh, after corner eight, which is not great. But I'm like, oh, we we have a long straightaway before nine to correct this, and then we hit the wall again. I'm like, okay. So I expected us to wave, which we did. And the sled kind of went up and down. And I expected that we we're going to come out of the other end, slamming hard on the wall and continue on our merry way. But instead, next thing I know, we're over. And I remember just thinking, wow, how embarrassing. We crashed in front of the entire world. Um, so I was not scared. I know it looked you know, violent and horrific, but that was just embarrassment. Um, because we had given credence to all the naysayers, all the people who felt we didn't belong. And we had also, in my mind, let down our country. Uh, but people were kind, you know, as we we're walking up the break and stretch, trying to exit stage left, uh, people were cheering and, you know, we love you, we love you, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a grand failure, obviously, um, but it made us more determined, more resolute that, you know what, we're, we're so much better than this. We're coming back and we're going to come back even better. So it, it was a low point, but it, it strengthened us. It really stiffened our spine. Reflecting on the film at the end of the movie, as the main characters cross the line with the bobsled, there's almost a sense of satisfaction at the fact that they've completed that race and held their heads high despite the failure that they experienced. So how did you kick on from that failure? Uh, there's no satisfaction there. Um, I mean, I look back now and I can appreciate the moment for what it is, right? Um, but in the moment, no, you feel horrible. And I, and I think you're probably supposed to feel horrible at the outset of a failure. 
but you should not dwell on that horrible feeling. You, you kind of have to look back at um, the lesson and, and, and how you're going to pick yourself up and move on. That, that's a challenge, I think, with most of us, right? We fail and we just beat ourselves over the head, like nonstop with that failure. No, I'm not saying you shouldn't feel bad in the moment because if you don't, it meant that the result you were pursuing wasn't that important anyway, right? So you are going to feel bad, but hey, you, you have to pick yourself up, man, and and uh, keep on pushing. It's fascinating to hear you say that because uh, studies show that we can be broken down into two categories of people. Um, we have the need to avoid failure and the need to achieve. So, Devon, would you say that you fall into the need to avoid failure category? Need, need to achieve. Really? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to avoid. I don't want to fail, but I recognize that the only way I'm going to succeed is by failing. I'm, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to crash my sled, and I'm <laughs> rather upset at the sled when it crashes. Although it's not the sled's fault, but somebody has to be blamed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, like, like as my stars are not saying, right? You are going back to the top. We're going to do it again. You know. Um, no, I, I don't try to avoid failure, I, but what's more important to me is achieving. Okay, so we're getting into the realm now of the term that we've been using, which is the Olympic mindset. The Olympic mindset being a set of attributes and characteristics that um, highly successful people, not just Olympians, have and seem to exhibit in many different ways. Now, Devin, in your experience and for the listeners at home, could you please give us some advice on how we can start to adopt an Olympic mindset and what that looks like? I think it starts with what I just said, man. What, what, is, what is most important to you? Is it your ego or the results? Like I said earlier, like success is the best revenge. And, and so I, what is most important to me is having that success under my belt, right? It's not something that I necessarily want to have to wave and say, see, I did it but it's something that I know inside that I did. And if I did it once, I can do it again, or I can do something similar um, like that again. Um, so the conversation that I'm having with, my, with myself, you know, often when I'm starting on something huge and ridiculous, it's like, it's true. I don't know how I'm going to do it. All I know is that I have to do it. I, I wish I could, I'm sorry. I wish I could be more profound. <laughs> I don't like, Lord, how am I going to make this bobsled team? I have no idea. All I know is that I have to make it. That's, that's all I know. I love that. And I don't think you need to be more profound. We don't need to overcomplicate this. <laughs> have a goal, work towards that goal, and don't give up until yeah. you've achieved that goal. I think we do. We sometimes overcomplicate things in life, whereas actually it's quite, a, it's quite simple. My wife always says about how um, almost you know one track minded I am sometimes and you know sometimes I take offense to that but other times I see it as a compliment because ultimately I'll set myself a challenge and work towards it and obviously that's what you're advocating as well and you know I think the thing that probably comes through talking to you Devin and, and obviously talking to you before this podcast as well is just you're obviously a very genuine guy and integrity is really important to you so clearly you know, this charity work that you've completed, which I'd like to talk about now a little, if you don't mind, has led to one of the greatest honours an Olympian can receive, which is to be named an Olympian for life um, okay. by the World Olympics Association. Now, obviously, I assume you weren't aiming for that. It just happened because you were just, as you say, trying not to crash the sled. <laughs> mm. 
Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny every time that's mentioned, I kind of chuckle. I'm like, I always thought I was an Olympian for life. I mean, I, I'm an Olympian and I plan to be one until I'm dead. You know, so, so they called me, I'm like, so it's kind of cool. I think it's, it's really flattering to, one of the most flattering things is, is to be recognized by your peers. You know, that your peers tend to, they're competing and they're more critical of you as they, as they are. But when they're recognizing you for something good that you do, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So yeah, the Keep On Pushing Foundation in particular, I've been involved in other things. I've, I've been part of a group called Right to Play. I've spent time visiting the troops across, US troops across the US and in the Persian Gulf. But perhaps my pride and joy is uh, the Keep On Pushing Foundation. Um, we do work back in my old neighborhood. Um, I started at my primary school doing a breakfast program, a school supplies program. We just built a sick bay last year, and we're in the process of setting up a computer lab for the students in the school, but it's going to double as a training center for young people in the community as well. Uh, because in the end, you know, Dominique, I, I am one of them. I, I happen to you know, yeah, that, you know, did work hard, did uh, kind of separate myself from the group a bit so that I could kind of rise above it and, you know, you know, got to Sandhurst and they liked my smile and put me on the bobsled team. But I also believe that there are many, many young people who have similar talents and potential um, as I did. And, you know, all of us need a hand up, man. So th that's what the foundation is about, trying to provide hope because I think you know hope I describes the lifeblood of possibilities if you have hope that there's a better tomorrow then you, you're going to put the work in to create and realize those possibilities and it's your turn to send the elevator back down to allow others to come up and join you precisely precisely exactly the final two questions for you Devon the, the first one is in, in line with what we were just discussing what advice if you could go back and speak to a young Devon Harris again would you give? I'm asked that all the time and you know my inclination is to say I wouldn't change anything because all of those experiences combine to make me who I am and put me on the path but yeah there's there's one thing man is like dude smell the roses a little bit right you know I was so intense and so focused that and maybe that's what I really needed to make my way. But if, if there's one thing I could probably change is like, I, so the, the analogy I use is I'm on one end of a rose garden working my way to the other end. And I'm so focused on getting to the other end I'm, and I'm walking past all those rose bushes and I never took a second to take a sniff, right? like, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's important, I think, to, to find a way to enjoy the moments because you're working hard. And it's going to be even harder for the next generation coming through with access to all the screen time they do and different types of social media. I think, have you got any advice to anybody listening in that maybe is struggling to kind of hear through the noise and, and, and hear and, and be in the moment? You know, um, it's, it's interesting you say that because you know, I grew up during the Pac-Man time, right? We didn't have the, this fancy screen things that's, that's going on. And, and I never got into that. I mean, I never really got into video games and so on because I saw that as distracting to the things I wanted to do. And I think, so the most important thing I, I think any young person can do for themselves and their future is to 
as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, figure out what they want to achieve in life. And then spend most of your time, most of your time pursuing those, right? So if, if, you, if you're not trying to be a video game developer, you shouldn't spend most of your time playing video games, right? You should be doing something else. Right? Yeah, have some fun. Smell the roses, as I just said, but that can't be most of your time. Most of your time has to be spent doing the thing that you have an interest in, have an inclination to do that you want to, that you believe can make a, a significant difference in your life down the road. And our final question, Devon, what are the three greatest life lessons and leadership lessons that you have to pass on? Mm. First is that, that what I just said, that this vision, this, you, you know, you have to have a vision for yourself, for your own life. Um, uh, because it inspires you, it engages and ch uh, engages you and channels your behavior and your commitment and your drive. And when you find yourself leading a, a like officially leading a team of people, it will if having that ability to articulate that vision for the team to others, want to engage them as well and get them to work together as a team. Um, I think it's really important to connect to a purpose too, man. It's like and I don't want it to sound too esoteric, like what is the meaning of life kind of way, but like, hey, how are you going to make a difference? Well, first of all, how are you going to make a difference in your own life? Let's start there, right? How, how, how are you going to make a difference in your own life? Doing the, do I, there I said, a mundane thing. So as kids, you know, turning up in school, paying attention in class, doing your homework, right? Doing those assignments, right? That is going to make it. You have to connect that to what you're trying to accomplish in life. Otherwise, it's tedious. It's like nobody really, really wants to work. Like I talk about work, but you know, you have to make effort. But the, if you can't connect the effort to a, a higher purpose, like man, if I do this now and stay in school, I can get out of the ghettos. That was me, right? I can make it to Sandhurst. Um, so connect, so figure out that purpose and connect the, the work that you're doing. Man, I'm, I'm doing all this running because I want to get to the Olympics, you know? And then it requires persistence. It requires that grit that we were talking about, that doggedness, that ability to just hang in there, endure, no matter how difficult it is, because you know that if you can stay the course, uh, I promise you, you'll eventually succeed. I just, I, that's been my, been my experience. Devon Harris, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you. It really has. And, and getting a chance to talk to you about your experiences has been really inspirational. So thank you for your time. And, and I'm looking forward to working with you in the future. Oh, man, Downey, thank you for your time as well. It's been great. Thank you for um, spending some time with me and uh, chatting and, uh, you know, shooting the breeze. Yeah, hearing about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by the NAHT, the School Leaders Union. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please get in touch. Let us know what you think. Is there anyone you'd like us to interview? Are there any questions you'd like us to ask? Get in touch. Let us know. We'd love to open a conversation with you. Thank you for joining us today and see you next time.
thank you for listening to today's episode with Devin Harris, and I hope you've enjoyed. At the end of every episode, I'm going to take the time to explore a charity that's close to our heart or a charity that's doing some great work and offer them this platform for free. So as I'm an ambassador of Showraise in the Red Card, I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce you to Josh Kelly. Josh is the charity's digital communications officer, and he works with Showraise in the Red Card. Hi, Josh. How are you? Hi, Dom. I'm great. Are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. So talk to us. Why would you like to be involved with the Olympic Mindset Podcast? Amazing. Well, it's all about values, isn't it? Um, Obviously, you've got a great connection to our organization as an ambassador from when Ponty played Valencia. So you you know our our organization inside out. So it's it's an amazing platform and it's all about spreading that anti-racist message, getting more people involved in the campaign and looking forward to our annual fundraising day. We're at day in October. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. So before we, you know, we talk a little about that, tell us what Show Races and Red Card stands for. Give us a bit of an overview for anybody that isn't aware of that charity. So Show Races and the Red Card is actually the UK's largest anti-racism education charity. We work with young people and adults every year, providing both educational workshops with the young people and, and workplace training with the adults in order to expand people's mindsets, make them think a little bit more critically about the role that racism plays in everyday life in the UK and how they can make their difference. And Josh, that brings a point I wanted to actually ask you, because obviously I got involved with this charity um, working with children predominantly as a teacher myself. We would do the Wear Red Days. We would obviously be involved with the Show Race and Red Card Days and do all that kind of non-school uniform stuff. So talk us through what you do with adults. Obviously, it's not just children you work with, right? Yeah, of course. So whilst children are the the big majority of the people that we work with, we educate over 50,000 young people every year. However, there's also a portion of people that receive our training are adults and a lot of the time that's going into workplaces, companies will will sign up to receive our training. And it's a really exciting opportunity for us to be able to to go into workplaces. And a lot of the time, uh, it's it's the most rewarding training. Nice. So, Josh, what can we do to support your work at Show Races and the Red Card? So every October, you can join us in celebrating Wear Red Day. It takes place on October 21st this year, and it's actually the biggest anti-racism fundraising event of the year nationally so it gives you a chance to you can have fun obviously you just wear red um donate if you can and be a proud anti-racist nice so anyone listening if you're interested in supporting the charity or if you'd just like to get involved in a bit of fun you can register for your free fundraising pack on the website www.theredcard.org